Well, what a joy this morning to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. I feel like that the Lord's providential timing was really good for us to be able to take the Lord's Supper on the cusp of a new year because the Lord's Supper is a little reminder of what my whole goal this morning is in my sermon. You know, sometimes when I introduce the sermon, it takes a while kind of to get into the main point. I'm laying my cards right here on the table, right off the bat, telling you exactly my goal for the sermon this morning and from this text. It is for you, every single one of us, heading into 2019 and every other year that God gives us life, a renewed commitment to private and public devotion to Jesus and his word. There are many, many things on the cusp of this new year that people are making resolutions for that perhaps many of you are making resolutions for. Let this be ever at the top of the list. Time with Jesus, both personally and privately, but also publicly together as God's church. Anytime you can get in the word, with Jesus, around the word, do it. It is the one thing, according to this text, that is most necessary. John Maxwell, the famous leadership kind of guru, says, it is almost impossible to, under, over, to overestimate the underimportance of absolutely everything. There are so many things that feel so important that are not important. And there are so many things, like the thing we're going to consider this morning, that are very important and yet can oftentimes feel so unimportant, so non-urgent, so if I get to it, I'll fit God in. I'll spend time with him. But Jesus wants to talk to us this morning from this story about the importance of time with him as the one necessary thing for 2019 and for every other year. So before we get into this passage, let's pray briefly together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your heart is so wide open to us, that you desire time with us oftentimes more than we desire time with you, that the throne of grace has 24-7 unrestricted access, that we are not only commanded, but we are welcomed to come. You say, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Come, you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without price. Lord, your invitations are so great and gracious. We pray that this year we would take you up on your offers. Willingly, cheerfully, joyfully, delightfully. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And God's presence is fullness of joy and eternal pleasure is at your right hand. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Lord, help us to draw near to you as you promise to draw near to us. And help us to do that with a renewed vigor, a renewed commitment, a renewed passion. Even as we enter into the cusp or sit on the threshold of a new year, May this, of all things, be the one necessary thing for us, and may it abide with us throughout our lives. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, here's, we're going to march through this passage under four headings this morning, and I want to go ahead and give you the first one as we get into this passage, and that is the misunderstanding about Martha. Martha's the main character in the story, even though Jesus and Mary are also present. It's clear that Martha and her behavior is the target of Jesus' saving instruction and counsel. 
in this passage. But Martha is a misunderstood woman. Many commentators have suspected that in Mary and Martha, you have two very clear personality types. You have Mary, the relational, easygoing, people kind of person who just kind of goes with the flow and enjoys just kind of drifting through life. And then you have Martha, whose checklists have checklists and whose bedsheets have spreadsheets and who has an agenda. She's type A. She's task-oriented. She's not people-oriented as much. She's about getting things done. Joanna Weaver is helpful here. She says that Mary's bent was to meander through life, pausing to smell the roses. Martha was more likely to pick the roses, quickly cut the stems at an angle, and arrange them in a vase with baby's breath and ferns. We've all heard the descriptions of Martha. She makes New Year's resolutions and then checks them off in March and starts a new list in April. And if you were to walk into her home unannounced, the crock pot would already be set, her kids would line up like the Von Trapps, choirs would sing, and she'd look like she just came from a dinner party. And after you'd leave, she'd kick her heels off and get back to organizing. One person has joked that the Proverbs 31 woman admires her. And it is clear that Martha is an incredibly gifted woman. She likely owns her house, which would be very rare for um, many women in those days. We see it in verse 38 when we read that now Jesus, as, as he, they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her, her, her house. And it's really clear that when Lazarus dies in John chapter 11, that Martha is the one who's sort of leading the way and getting that funeral organized and taking care of all that needs to be taken care of. So I want to I point out quickly two misunderstandings when it comes to Martha because it's very easy in, in, in sermons like this to pick on Martha and say she's the one that's got all the problems and Mary's the one we have to be exactly like. That's not true. Here's the first misunderstanding about Martha. Don't be like Martha. Christian, don't be a Martha. Don't be a Martha. You ever heard that? Don't be a Martha. There's some ways you should be a Martha. Think about this. Martha is, what is she doing? She is serving Jesus. Don't do that. We shouldn't do that. I think the Bible commands us, serve the Lord with gladness, right? I mean, we are to be fervent in spirit, Romans 12, boiling hot in service to God. This is what Martha's doing. In fact, the word that Luke uses to describe Martha's serving is diakoneo, which is where we get the word deacon from, it's, it's used positively in every single place in the New Testament. It is never used negatively. It is used to describe Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. It is used to describe the qualifications for deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It is used to commend Phoebe as a faithful servant in the local church in Romans 16, verse 1. Everywhere this word serving is used, which describes what Martha is doing, it's positive. She's a wonderful example of zealous service to Jesus. Also, she's welcoming. Did you see that in verse 38? She's welcoming Jesus into her home. She's practicing the virtue of gospel hospitality. So, just to be clear on the front end, this passage is not teaching 
that no one should ever prepare meals. We should all just sit around and do our quiet times all day. That would go against many other things that Scripture teaches. In fact, most, in fact, most of the great things being done in the world today, like writing books and building hospitals and raising babies, most of these wonderful things are being done by tired people. Very tired people. So the goal of this sermon is not to get everyone to drop ministry and go spend as much time as you can in a tent by the lake talking to Jesus and drop out of stacking chairs and serving in the nursery and doing ministry. No. So that's misunderstanding number one. When we say don't, mean, don't, be, don't be a Martha, we don't mean don't be a Martha in every single way. Certainly in her welcoming and in her serving She's exemplary. Second misunderstanding. Jesus prefers Mary types. You know, we're all wired a certain way. All of us, I think this is generally true based upon common grace and just the way people are. I think generally Mary and Martha represent, you know, the proclivities of most people. There's a people orientation and there's a task orientation. And sometimes this passage is lifted up to say, hey, Jesus prefers people-oriented people, not task-oriented people. So all the task-oriented people like me feel like he doesn't love me because I'm a Martha. That's my bent. I like to get stuff done. I like to check things off lists. I like to move on. But Martha types might read this passage and think something like, oh, no, oh, no. I've done this so many years, and I've crossed all my T's, and I've worked harder, and Jesus still prefers Mary over me. Listen. We need to dispel the notion that Jesus is harshly chastising Martha here. He is not. He's not raising his voice. Remember when he says, Martha, Martha? That's not a voice of chastisement. Alan Thompson asserts that this represents Jesus' tenderness toward her. You can hear it, can't you? Martha, Martha. This double vocative in the original would be a sign of emotion. Remember when David cries, Absalom, my son. It was a cry of emotion and love and passion, not a cry of chastisement. And later on, when we encounter Mary and Martha in John's gospel after Lazarus dies in John chapter 11, John actually introduces these sisters to his readers with these words. In John chapter 11, verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister. I think that's interesting. Jesus loved, Mary doesn't even get mentioned. Jesus loved Martha and her sister. Now, we need to be clear. That was true in John 11, and it's also true in Luke 10. Jesus of Nazareth came to redeem all kinds of personalities all kinds of bents, all kinds of proclivities. He died in the place of people who struggle with different types of sin. Martha had hers and Mary had hers. But be certain, if you read this story and conclude that Jesus loves Mary more than Martha, you've misunderstood the gospel itself. Jesus doesn't love one personality type more than another or one set of sins over another set of sins. No, Jesus loves Mary Jesus loves Martha. So that's the misunderstanding. I wanted to dispel that on the front end. She's a welcoming, servant-hearted woman, loves Jesus, 
but she's got some problems. And Jesus is going to talk to her about those in his gracious way. So that's the misunderstanding about Martha. Point number two, the misstep of Martha. The misstep of Martha. Where'd she go astray? Where'd she miss the, miss the mark? Well, we see it in the words of Jesus in verse 40. Look what he says. But Martha was distracted. Martha was distracted. That's her misstep. It's not her serving that's the problem. It's her distraction that's the problem. Martha's affliction is not that she's a busybody. Martha's affliction is that she has a busy heart. She's distracted with much serving. And because of this, her very legitimate, life-giving, diaconal service is spoiled. She's working from a chaotic center. She's seeking to create order while she's cluttered. She's so busied with and distracted by secondary things that she's lost touch with the first thing, which is the love that brought her into friendship with Jesus in the first place. Listen, the text before us in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42, is not a call to inactivity. It is a call to reprioritization. Spending time with Jesus is more important than doing things for Jesus, but that doesn't mean that doing things for Jesus is not important. That's the point of the passage. It's reprioritization. Spending time with Jesus is more important than doing things for Jesus. It's not a matter of good versus evil, but a matter of first versus second. That's the passage. Not a matter of good versus evil, as though serving Jesus was the bad thing, And spending time with Jesus was the good thing. No, spending time with Jesus is the first thing. Serving Jesus is the second thing. Martha, Martha, before you change the world, let me first change you. Martha, Martha, before you make your mark on others, let me first make my mark on you. Martha, Martha, before you get busy to make things better, let me first get busy to make you better. Martha, Martha, before you can serve and feed me, I need to first serve and feed you. See, Jesus challenges Martha not because of her service, but because her service was taking the place of sitting and listening to him. In this moment, her priorities were not Christ's priorities. She probably could have prepared a simpler meal and sat down beside her sister, yet she was too busy to sit at Jesus' feet. And brothers and sisters, if you're too busy to sit at Jesus' feet, you're too busy. Francis Chan said, there's no substitute for being alone with God. If you don't have time, you need to quit something to make room. Skip a meal, cancel a meeting, end a regular commitment. There is literally nothing more important you could do today. Blaise Pascal said, busyness sends more people to hell than outright rejection of God. Kevin DeYoung said, when we are crazy busy, we put our souls at risk. Jesus knew that. Martha needed to know that. The danger of busyness is that it keeps us from the feet of Jesus. Jesus is shattering the myth here that the busier you are, the more faithful you are. He's shattering that myth. This is not necessarily the case. 
that the more you do for me, the more faithful you are to me. Eugene Peterson, who we just lost in 2018, says how easy it is to get interested in projects for God and gradually lose interest in God, alive, deadening our lives with the projects. This happens a lot. Because the projects have the name of God attached to them, it's easy to assume that we are involved with God. It's the devil's work to get us worked up thinking and acting for God and then subtly detach us from a relational obedience and adoration of God, substituting ourselves, our godlike egos, in the place originally occupied by God. And Francis Schaeffer, a generation before, echoed this warning when he said, The central problem of our age is not liberalism or modernism, nor the old Roman Catholicism or the new Roman Catholicism, nor the threat of communism, nor even the threat of rationalism and the monolithic consensus which surrounds us, nor, I would add today, postmodernism or materialistic consumerism or visceral sensualism or whatever. All these are dangerous, but not the primary threat. The real problem is this. Listen to this. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, individually and corporately, tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than of the Spirit. The central problem is always in the midst of the people of God, not in the circumstances surrounding them. And this is what Jesus' word to us this morning solves. It solves that dilemma. It solves the problem of doing the Lord's work in the flesh and not in the power of the Spirit. Because by spending time with Jesus, then we serve him out of the strength that he supplies. Not out of the strength that we generate in our own power. So that's the misunderstanding about Martha. We've talked about that. We've seen the misstep. We've seen her distraction. Now let's talk about the malady in Martha. What did that distraction result in? What did her inability to let go of other things that were good to spend time with Jesus, what did that distraction produce? What kind of fruit did that bear in her life? Well, this, this needs to be clear. Her problem isn't the circumstances that are around her as much as she would like to think they are. The problem of Martha is not the world in which she, she inhabits. The problem is the heart that inhabits her. That's the problem. See, in our culture, we say that, you know, we have an out, outside problem and an internal solution. That's the way our culture handles things. See, the problems are all outside of me. They're never me. They're always outside of me, and I'm the solution to my problems. The Bible has a completely opposite take on that. The problem is inside of you, and the solution is outside of you. It's in Christ. It's in God. It's in the Holy Spirit. It's not in you. So what is the fruit that her distraction is creating? We see three things here in the text. First, Jesus says that she is anxious and troubled. You see that in verse 41, but the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. See, her distraction has given way to an anxiety, a sense of trouble about her life, a feeling, a sense of just, I got to get this done and it's not happening and I'm fretting. And notice in verse 40 that she's overwhelmed. She went up to him and says, Lord, do you not care? Do you not care? I got pots here. 
We're trying to get the meal on the table. She's sitting there. I got a lot. I mean, can you not tell her just to help me? Do you notice what she's doing? She's demanding Jesus to do something for her. See, this is what happens when we get distracted. We start to have certain expectations of Jesus that he never gave us expectations to have. And then we start demanding things and getting demanding. So she's anxious, she's troubled, she's overwhelmed, she's demanding. She's in a funk. That's a funk. Her distraction and busy heart is feeding an irritability. And it's feeding a sense of moral superiority over others, isn't it? She's getting some pride about this. Notice how Martha projects her expectations on her sister and assumes that she's the one in the right. See, we, this is what happens. We feel like we're always right when we don't spend time with Jesus. We start to feel like we're the most important person in the room and all the people should agree with us because we're the ones who are right. And then we grow bitter towards others for not meeting our expectations. And we grow bitter toward Jesus for not correcting people to meet our expectations. This is nasty sin. This is really nasty sin. And it's all the fruit of distraction. It's all the fruit of people not spending time with Christ. You see what happens to us, brothers and sisters, when we don't spend time with Jesus? We become really nasty around each other. We become anxious. We become troubled. We become overwhelmed. We become demanding. And nobody's got time for that. So I'm begging you, for the sake of love for your brothers and sisters, spend time with Jesus, okay? Let, him sa- let his savor come off on you so that you can be a great blessing to the church of God so that you can love and serve your brothers and sisters. Notice this leads her to actually question God's character. She's actually questioning the way Jesus is handling things. She's got a perspective on things. She thinks things should be going a certain way, and she says, Lord, listen, I've got the right view of this. She needs to be up off that floor in the kitchen serving with me. When are you going to get with that? When are you going to understand that that's the right thing to do? Tim Keller explains this very well. If Martha really was doing this for Jesus, she wouldn't have been upset when he refused to let things go the way she wants. Her unanswered plea proved that she was not doing it for Jesus. She was doing it for herself. Why is she doing that? Why is she anxious and troubled and frustrated and overwhelmed and demanding? Well, I want to submit three things to you. These are a little bit speculative. All right? The text doesn't tell us exactly why other than that she was distracted and this resulted. But I think we can use some biblical understanding of the way the Bible talks about our motivations to get at some of what might be happening here. So I want to submit... Three things that might be causing this anxiety and trouble and what resulted, what caused the distraction in the first place. Number one, approval. Approval. I think Martha has a deep longing to be accepted. What will Jesus think of me? Listen, she's doing exactly what a woman in that culture is expected to do when a rabbi comes over. I don't know if you ever thought about this. Mary is not what you're supposed to be doing. First of all, women aren't even supposed to be sitting at the feet of Jesus, a rabbi. That is wrong in that culture. 
That would not be tolerated. That would be seen as insubordination and you're way out of line, lady. And no, the men would be sitting, but, but no, the woman is sitting there. Martha's doing exactly what would be expected of her. In that culture, it would have been expected, and Martha would have been commended for all that she was doing by any self-respecting rabbi who came in her home. Working hard, being welcoming, serving. What Mary had chosen to do was taboo. And this teaches us very something, very, very, something very important about the kingdom of God. Jesus is fine with over, overturning cultural taboos and saying, no, women have a right to my feet. All genders have a right to me to come and sit and learn from me. One writer says that too often we make busyness a statement of our self-importance and we use busyness as a way of telling ourselves and maybe more importantly others just how essential we are. Busyness is a way of posturing our significance. This kind of anxiety is very subtle. It has a selfish root, but its fruit looks deceptively like unselfishness. It's the desire for approval dressed up to look like the desire to serve. But deep down what she wants is someone to say, I love you. I love you. And she thinks the way that she's going to get the I love you from Jesus is by working really hard for him. It's caring for others dressed up in such a way as really a caring for yourself. And this is how the gospel frees us. It says, Martha, Martha, you don't have to work for me. You don't have to work for me. I appreciate all that you're doing. A pot of Campbell's poured in, a couple crackers, that'll do. You don't, you don't have to worry about it. I love you. I'm welcoming you. I'm the host here, not you, Martha. And so approval, a longing to be accepted. Number two, accomplishment. This sense of need to get everything that she had envisioned in her mind for Jesus to be done, done. She has, the, she has a way of thinking about Okay, this is what I want to do for my Lord. This is what I'd like to, the way I want to serve him. This is the way I want to welcome him. And then we see this taking on a new way when she begins to execute all of this and do all this and want to get it all done and get frustrated when it's not. I want to share with you a study that was done a few years ago by a professor at George Mason University, and this is specifically for, for us as parents, parents of kids, teenagers. Perhaps you're a parent like me who has struggled from time to time to make sure that your kids get the maximum amount of experiences and you want to you know, get them involved in all kinds of things so that they can excel in the world and do well and you want to you know, just max them out on busyness and keep them involved in things and you don't want your kids to get behind and you want to make sure that they're you know, doing all the things they should be doing. So this study was done in light of that. Brian Kaplan at George Mason University conducted extensive studies on biological twins who were adopted by different families. And what their research showed is that all the things the parents had their kids involved in had little to no effect on what the child achieved or how they turned out assuming that the home environment was stable. Kaplan cites a study where kids were asked to grade their parents, comment on what they want to do better, and rarely did the kids ask for more time, but they did say that they wished their parents were less stressed and so prone to anger. 
Kids suffer, Kaplan says, from secondhand stress. All the busyness we are pouring into their lives to add value is actually crushing both them and their relationships with us. That sense of accomplishment, that drive for achievement is killing relationships with kids. Now, does that mean you just pull them out of everything and don't get, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this inner compulsion of accomplishment, however you define that, by the maximum number of activities that we can get in is actually doing harm, more harm rather than good, and actually has no scientific evidence that really it has any positive effect. So we see approval, we see accomplishment, we also see avoidance. You know, sometimes we choose busyness because we have to deal with ourselves when we're not busy. You ever feel this? When you're busy, you don't think about yourself. You're moving, moving, going, going. But when you stop and spend time with Jesus, it doesn't feel very good. You start to see yourself and have to deal with yourself and reckon with all the junk that still remains in your heart. Busyness can easily be an escape. An overflowing schedule can become a shield protecting us from the unpredictable, inconvenient, time-consuming needs of other people and seeing the scary depths of our own hearts. Here's what one writer said. We think we want peace and silence and freedom and leisure, but deep down we know that that would be unendurable for us. In fact, we want complexity. We want to complexify our lives. We don't have to. We want to. We want to be harried and hassled and busy. Unconsciously, we want the very thing we complain about. If we had leisure, we would look at ourselves and listen to our hearts and see the great gaping hole in our hearts and be terrified because that hole is so big, nothing but God can fill it. I think that's some of what Martha's dealing with. I'd rather serve than be with him. I'd rather do for him than have him do for me. I I need approval. I need accomplishment. I need avoidance to deal with what's really in my heart and life. So we see, just to quickly review before we come to the final point, we've seen her, our misunderstanding of her, of Martha, and ourselves. We've seen the misstep and distraction, and then we've seen a lot of the malady that came out of that, a lot of the fruit that came out of anxiety and troubled and overwhelmed and demanding, and all of that being rooted in her need, perhaps, for approval, for accomplishment, for affirmation, and to avoid herself. So let me conclude, number four, with the message for Martha. The message for Martha and for us. This is for us, too, lest we just think Martha's sins aren't in our lives. The message that Jesus provides for Martha is found in the example of Mary. Look at verse 39. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Verse 42, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Jesus' message for Martha and for all of us on the cusp of 2019 is this. 
spend focused time sitting under the authority of God's word, learning from Jesus and listening to Jesus. Jesus says that in verse 42, Mary has chosen the good portion. Jesus doesn't shy away from using some compelling imagery here. He says to Martha, you've been preparing a feast. I want to let you know something. Mary's already eating. She has food to eat that you know not of. And we need to do the same. Now, I want to conclude thinking about this. This is the first time I've noticed this when I was, um, when I was studying this text. It's the first time that I noticed the larger context of Luke 10 and where Mary and Martha in this story finds itself situated in that context. And I think it's very, very enlightening and very, very helpful to us. And I want to review it briefly with you. Think about the larger context of Luke 10. If you look back at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus is sending out the 72 disciples to go out and begin healing and preaching the gospel and attacking the, the armies of Satan and pushing back the kingdom of darkness. And they encounter some tremendous success, don't they? And they come back in verse 17 and we read the following. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. I mean, that's, that's influence. That's power. You're, you're speaking in the name of Jesus and the, the forces of darkness are being pushed back? Look at how Jesus commends them and affirms them. He says in verse 18, And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. That the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's a little bit of cold water on a party. You know what I mean? Like he's, they've just come back rocking the world for the kingdom and Jesus tells them, hey guys, I'm happy about that. Listen, I saw it. It was amazing. But I'm going to tell you what, it's a bad place to situate your joy. What you do for me is a bad place to put your joy. You should put your joy in what I've done for you. Do you see the Mary and Martha story now? Be careful that what you do for Jesus isn't more exhilarating than what Jesus does for you. Beware of loving God more for what he does through you than what he's done for you. That's the point. And oh, how easy it is Sometimes it's very dangerous to pray, God, use me powerfully. It's a dangerous prayer. Do you have any idea what might happen if God did? You might walk away from God. Better to pray, Lord, keep me, whatever you choose to do. So the disciples are sent out, they return with joy, but Jesus 
recalibrates and they come back with Martha hearts. They come back excited about what they've done for Jesus. And Jesus says, don't put your joy there. Put your joy in me. Put your joy that your names are written in heaven. Not that you're being used of me to write other people's names in heaven. Don't do that. Don't take joy in how many people you serve and how many gospel times of gospel you share and how many people you baptize or whatever, or whatever your particular ministry in the kingdom is. Whatever it is, it's not more critical or more joyous or more foundational than what I've done for you. I hang that quote in our house for a reason. Jeremy helped prepare a graphic a couple of years ago. It kind of became a, a life statement for me. And it hangs in our living room, that verse. Don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven so that I can be reminded every single day where my joy really is supposed to be found. But there's a second, there's a second story on the heels of this before we get into Mary and Martha, and it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Right? We read in verse 25, Behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you shall live. Verse 29, But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And then Jesus replies with the famous, well-known parable of the Good Samaritan, where we see a Levite, a priest, and a Samaritan all encountering a man who has been wounded and beaten up, and who's the one that goes to help him but the Samaritan? Not the priest, not the Levite, not the religious professionals, but the one who is an outcast. And I think Jesus' point is, partly in that parable, don't confuse religious activity for real relationship with God. These, these, this Levite and this priest were caught up in all kinds of religious activity, but they didn't have a relationship with God. Why? Because they didn't care about a broken down man who's right in front of them. They found a way to avoid showing mercy to somebody. And I think he's also teaching this reality, the same thing he's teaching the disciples earlier in the chapter and Mary and Martha in our text this morning, and that is loving God precedes loving neighbor. That's what we see when he asks about the commandments, when the lawyer comes up and puts him to the test and says, what are the greatest commandments? And he says, Here, or what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor. And then he gives a parable that illustrates someone who doesn't do that, at least two people that don't. They don't love their neighbor because they don't love God. And what Jesus is telling us this morning, setting us up for this story with Mary and Martha, is that loving God precedes loving others. So you see it in the larger context of Luke 10. It's a beautiful thing. And it's just, again, it, it's bending the nail over and Jesus giving renewed emphasis to this. My, your time with me is most fundamental. Your time with me is most necessary. Not what you do for me. That can go terribly wrong if you don't spend time with me. Because what happened with the priests and the Levites is that they, they didn't spend time with, G, with God. Somehow, in the midst of all their religious activity, they failed to have the heart of God. 
And a Samaritan steps forward and has to reprove them. And it's because they failed to be merry. They failed to sit at the feet of Jesus. Listen, Jesus doesn't want just what you do for him. He wants you. He wants you. And I'm going to close with one of my favorite songs, Just As I Am by Andrew Peterson. Let me read you the lyrics because this is the theme of the song. Jesus doesn't want just what you do for him. He wants you. That's the message I want you to hear this morning. He doesn't want just what you do for him. He wants you. Here's what Andrew says. What's that on the ground? It's what's left of my heart. Somebody named Jesus broke it to pieces and planted the shards. And they're coming up green. And they're coming in bloom. I can hardly believe this is all coming true. All of my life, I've held on to this fear. These thistles and vines ensnare and entwine what flowers appeared. It's the fear that I'll fall one too many times. It's the fear that his love is no better than mine. Well, it's time now to harvest what little that grew. This man they call Jesus who planted the seeds has come for the fruit. And the best that I've got isn't nearly enough. He's glad for the crop, but it's me that he loves. Just as I am, just as I was, just as I will be, he loves me, he does. He showed me the day that he shed his own blood. He loves me. Oh, he loves me, he does. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the reminder of your love, of your desire to be with us, and of your wide open invitation to us in this coming year to sit at your feet and learn from your son and to be empowered by your Holy Spirit to serve you in the strength that you supply. Lead us to the rock that is higher than us. If it requires discipline, if it requires trial to keep us near you, bring it on. That is the thing that's most necessary. But God, also we pray with the psalmist, let us not be like the mule that has to have a bit put in its mouth or it will not remain near to you. Lord, help us to not have to have the bit put in through trial and discipline to stay near you. But help us to gladly and willingly and daily find some time, somewhere to spend time sitting at your feet, hearing your word, talking to you. And we ask all this in the glorious name of our gracious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.